Welcome to the GDPR Weekly Show, one of the top five GDPR podcasts worldwide. Here is what's coming up in this week's episode. Welcome to episode 194 of the GDPR Weekly Show, the number one GDPR podcast worldwide. Coming up in this week's episode, we have news of a data breach at car hire company SIS. We also have news of a data breach at the University of Essex. And we also have news that with the Queen's speech in Parliament due on Tuesday this week, it's rumoured that included within the legislation come before this next period of the UK Parliament will be a new UK data bill. We then travel to Australia where transport for New South Wales has had a cyber attack and then to America where the US Department of Defence has been scammed out of millions of dollars after a phishing attack. We then travel to Spain, where the Spanish Prime Minister's phone has been attacked by Pegasus spyware. And then we return to America and to California, where the California State Bar has had a data breach. And remaining in California, we have news that my nurse has closed after a data breach. We then have news that schools across the US have been affected by a data breach at Illuminate. And we then travel to Canada, where IKEA Canada has had a data breach. We then look at the latest news that Google Play Store is asking for more information on how apps handle data. And then we return to the UK where High Court Judgment has gives useful guidance on GDPR data breach damages. We then travel to India where India is introducing a six-hour data breach reporting window. And then to Europe where the EU Commission gives the first hints of GDPR Plus which it says will facilitate a revolution in health data. We then return to America, where Utah has passed the Utah Consumer Privacies Act, and then to Hungary, where the Hungarian Data Protection Authority has issued a penalty after a bank used artificial intelligence to attempt to judge the emotions felt by its customers. We then have years that the Central European Court of Justice has boosted the opportunities for consumer group actions for GDPR infringements. And then finally this week, we return and look at Google Analytics and GDPR, and in light of the recent rules that Google Analytics by itself is not GDPR compliant, just what do you need to do to make your implementation of Google Analytics GDPR compliant? So as always, a wide range of articles for you this week. We hope you do find the information in the articles useful and informative. We always welcome your feedback. So if you have any feedback for us, please do email us at feedback at gdprweeklyshow.com. We do read every single piece of feedback we receive and where possible we incorporate your suggestions for improvements into the show. However, due to the volume of feedback we receive, it's not always possible to respond to each piece of feedback individually. Wish there was a simple guide to GDPR? Well, now there is. GDPR made simple. Available now on Amazon. Leading car rental company Sixth has confirmed a cyber attack that has affected its operations and reportedly caused a number of branches to resort to taking bookings using pen and paper. Sixth said the attack started on Friday, April 29th and was able to contain it at an early stage, although customer reports still suggest the company is battling to recover fully. Since the attack took hold, UK customers have been unable to contact Sixth via email or phone and have been left without roadside support after rented cars have broken down. SITS confirmed that it does not believe any customer data was accessed or stolen, and the question of customer data was the first we addressed. SITS added it would notify customers immediately if that understanding changes. SITS also confirmed that it's reported the incident to all the relevant regulators and authorities, but could not reveal any further details at this stage. At the time of going to broadcast, phone lines connecting to SITS Germany head office appear to be disconnected or malfunctioning, and UK phone lines are connected but just ring out. 
The company has not confirmed what kind of cyber attack it has suffered, but it has begun an investigation with both internal and external experts. In a statement, Sixth said, As a standard precautionary measure, access to IT systems was immediately restricted and a pre-planned recovery processes were initiated. Many central six systems, in particular the website and apps, were kept up and running. Thereby, impacts on the company, its operation and its services have been minimised to provide business continuity for customers. However, temporary disruption, in particular in customer care centres and selected branches, are likely to occur in the short term. The only sixth affiliated Twitter account responding to user queries related to service outages is a Netherlands-based account with others having not tweeted since before the cyber attack. Sixth is one of the biggest car rental companies in the world, operating more than 240,000 vehicles across more than 400 cities in 50 countries. If we get any update on this from Sixth or the ICO, we will, of course, bring it to you in the next available episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. To Essex now, and a data breach affecting more than 400 students is being treated very seriously by the University of Essex. Law firm Hayes Connor, which is representing some students, said an email from an external partner of the college included personal information. A spreadsheet containing student IDs, dates of birth and contact details was attached to the email on 23rd of March this year. The university said it was offering support to those affected. An email from facilities management was sent requesting payment for repairs to a broken door and accommodation block and it included all the personal information. Christine Sabino, a legal specialist at Hayes Connor, representing those affected, said it was a particularly worrying data breach. The spreadsheet included on this email and contained all kinds of crucial data on hundreds of people, so the seriousness of the issue should not be downplayed, she said. Through our work, we've seen how breaches of this kind can have a big impact on those affected. It should also be remembered that many individuals involved here are young adults living away from home for the first time. She said students who approached them were desperate to know how it happened and what was being done to prevent it happening again. A University of Essex spokesman said, We are taking the issue very seriously and ensuring our delivery partners understand our high expectations about management of data. We've contacted all individuals involved to offer advice and support. If we get any information from the University of Essex, Hayes Connor or the ICO, we will of course bring it to you in the next available episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. Contact us on helpdesk at gdprweeklyshow.com. Tuesday this week we'll see the Queen's speech in Parliament which will set out the legislation which the government hopes to bring forward in this session of Parliament. We understand that the government will announce a new data reform bill in the Queen's speech intended to allow the UK to deviate from EU privacy legislation. As we've previously covered on the GPWG show, this legislation follows on from the consultation which the government held in the summer and autumn of last year. The announcement comes as the Conservative Party wants to claim to deliver the Brexit dividend ahead of the next general election, alongside an urgent need to raise the GDP to address economic issues. This was true when the reforms were first planned following the top ID19 recession, but both needs are seen to be even more critical now with the Bank of England predicting a recession and a sharp rise in inflation to over 10% by the end of this year. However, there are fears that if reforms aren't substantial enough, then they won't provide much of a boost to business. This is true, of course, but if the change is too extreme, then the UK could lose its GDPR EU adequacy status, which would then mean big changes to all data agreements where data was being transferred into or out of the UK. And that would be a big cost on business. It's estimated that the cost of that would be somewhere in the region of £1.6 billion. 
which business can ill afford at this time due to other increasing costs, particularly, of course, at the moment, the rise in energy costs. It's understood that within weeks of the Queen's speech, which will take place on Tuesday the 10th of May, the government will publish its response to its consultation with businesses and civil society on data protection reform. It's then understood that the draft bill will be published sometime in the summer. The bill is understood to be quite widespread, not just talking about GDPR, but also talking about strapping cookie consent banners, which don't actually form under GDPR, but they do fall under the UK's Privacy and Electronic Communications Regulations, otherwise known as PECA. The bill's passage through Parliament is likely to be marked by arguments over whether it risks compromising UK's data adequacy status. A Department of Culture, Media and Sports spokesperson did not respond to a request for comment when we approached them saying that they were unable to speculate on what would be in the Queen's speech and that we would have to wait till Tuesday to hear what was announced. We will, of course, return to this in next week's episode of the GDPR Weekly Show once we have more details of the government's proposed bill. To Australia now, and the Australian State of New South Wales Transport Agency, Transport for New South Wales, revealed today that it had been impacted by a cyber attack in early April 2022. The attack focused on the agency's authorised inspection scheme online application system. This is a system that authorises examiners to inspect vehicles to meet safety requirements. To do this, users must input personal details like their name, phone number, email address, driver's licence number and date of birth. During the incident, an unauthorised third party successfully accessed a small number of applications user accounts, said Transport for New South Wales. It's notifying examiners individually and providing options to help them avoid further impacts on the incident. Additional security measures were put in place and monitoring the application is continuing, although Transport for New South Wales didn't reveal what new measures had been introduced. In a statement, Transport for New South Wales said, We recognise that data privacy is paramount and deeply regret that customers may be affected by this attack. Scammers may try to capitalise on these events. Customers should not respond to unsolicited phone calls, emails or text messages from anyone claiming to be from Transport for New South Wales related to any security matter. The attack comes a year after Transport for New South Wales was impacted by a cyber attack on a Celian's file transfer system. In February 2021, it revealed that some Transport for New South Wales information that was taken before the attack on a Celian service was interrupted. If we get any update on this, we will bring it to you in the next available episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. Wish there was a simple guide to GDPR? Well, now there is. GDPR made simple. Available now on Amazon. To America now, and the U.S. Department of Defense has confirmed it was the victim of a $23.5 million U.S. dollar fishing scam in 2018 and that the criminal has finally been punished. 40-year-old California resident, Sertan Oyunta, was trialed on the 28th of April and found guilty of committing multiple counts of fraud against the U.S. government, as well as aggravated identity theft and making false statements to federal officers. During a three-month window between June and September 2018, Oyunta and his associates in Germany, Turkey and New Jersey helped to send phishing emails to Department of Defence contractors purporting to be communications from the government. The emails contained links to spoof web pages they created that appeared to mimic the real web page of the General Service Administration. The emails and spoof website encouraged the vendors to input their login credentials, which could be used to access their account details, including the financial information required for the Department of Defence to pay for goods and services. The successful instance saw a supplier of jet fuel fall victim to the phishing scam, and Royanta was able to use the login credentials to change the vendor's payment details to his own, eventually leading to the Department of Defence paying Royanta $23.5 million US for jet fuel that he did not supply. 
and to open the bank account registers of a shell company and used it in the scam. The shell company was created with assistance from an associate, Harriet Arslan, who owned a used car dealership in New Jersey. Arslan was responsible for opening the shell company, registering its phone number, finding the individual to post as the company's owner, and opening the bank account. The criminals had difficulty accessing all the funds after the Department of Defence completed the payment and sought help from an associate in Turkey to forge a government contract which they could show the bank in a bid to convince it to release the full sum. The combined maximum prison sentences for renters' charges amount to 107 years, with all fines relating to fraud charges also amounting to three million US dollars or twice the gross profit or loss relating to the offence, whichever is greater, the Department of Defence said. The remain charges also bring a potential quarter million dollars fine or twice the gain or loss from the offence, whichever is greater. Orienta sentencing will be determined later, while Arslan will be sentenced in June this year. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. To Spain now, and the Spanish government has said that the mobile phones of the Prime Minister, Pedro Sánchez, and the Defence Minister, Margarita Robles, were both infected last year with a poster spyware that its manufacturer's claim is available only to state agencies. In a hastily convened press conference on Monday morning, Felix Bolanos, the Minister for the Presidency, said Sánchez's phone was targeted in May and June 2021, while Robles was targeted in June 2021. Data was extracted from both phones. Bolana said the illicit and external targeting would be investigated by Spain's highest criminal court, the Audiencia Nacional, adding that targeting must have come from abroad as any such monitoring in Spain would have required judicial authorization. These facts have been confirmed and are irrefutable, said Bolanos. I don't think now is the time to date supposition or conjecture about what the motivation may have been. The phones of other members of the government would have been examined to determine whether they may also have been targeted. The allegations come as the Spanish government faces questions over how Pegasus, which is sold by the Israeli company NSO Group, allegedly came to be used to monitor dozens of members of the Catalan independence movement, including the president of the northeast Spanish region, Pere Arajonas, and three of his predecessors. Last month, Arajonas told the Guardian newspaper that the alleged targeting revealed by Citizen Lab security experts constituted a violation of individual rights, an attack on democracy, and a threat to political dissent. The Catalan regional government has pointed a finger at Spain's National Intelligence Centre, the CNI, which insists its operations are overseen by the Supreme Court and it acts in full accordance with the legal system and with absolute respect for applicable laws. The Spanish government has promised an internal CNI investigation into the alleged charging of Catalan activists, while Spain's public ombudsman has also opened an independent investigation. Arognes has called for Roble, who oversees the CNI's defence minister, to resign and his Catalan Republican Left Party has threatened to withhold its support for the government in the national parliament. The Catalan president said in a statement, any political espionage is extremely serious. We reported spying a few days ago, but were not given an explanation by the Spanish government. When it's massive spying on Catalan institutions and the independence movement, it was all silence and excuses. With this, it's all moving very fast. Responsibility needs to be established straight away. A thorough independent investigation remains urgent and responsibility needs to be taken. NSO Group said in a statement it would investigate any suspicion of misuse of its software and would cooperate with any governmental investigation. While we've not seen any information related to this alleged misuse and we are not familiar with the details of this specific case, NSO's firm stance on these issues is that the use of cyber tools in order to monitor politicians, dissidents, activists and journalists is a severe misuse of any technology and goes against the desired use of such critical tools. NSO is a software provider. The company does not operate the technology, nor is privileged to data. 
company does not and cannot know who the targets of its customers are, yet implements measures to ensure that these systems are used solely for the authorised uses. NSO Grip claims Pegasus is sold only to governments to track criminals and terrorists. A joint investigation two years ago by The Guardian newspaper and Alpay established that the Speaker of the Catalan Regional Government and at least two other pro-independent supporters were warned that spyware had been used to target them. NSO Group was placed on a US blacklist in November 2021, three months after an assorted journalist working with the French non-profit group Forbidden Stories revealed multiple cases of journalists and activists who were hacked by foreign governments using the Pegasus spyware, including American citizens. Other possible targets have included Emmanuel Macron, the French president, and almost his entire cabinet. NSO has said its spyware is used by foreign government clients to target serious criminals. It has also denied that any of its clients ever targeted Emmanuel Macron or any French government officials. Contact us on helpdesk at gdprweeklyshow.com. To California now, and the State Bar of California has begun notifying thousands of individuals whose names appeared in 322,525 confidential attorney discipline records published online in a massive data breach discovered in February. Specifically, the State Bar said on Friday, May the 6th, they will contact through email or postal mail 1,300 complainants, witnesses or respondents whose names appeared in 1,034 confidential records that showed evidence of a page view. Those named in unviewed records with emails on file with the State Bar will also be contacted. We are taking these steps because we believe it's the right thing to do, State Bar Executive Director Lee Wilson said in a statement. The State Bar is committed to transparency and maintaining the public's trust in our agency is paramount. That said, we had to balance our commitment to being transparent with consideration of cost, logistics and fiscal prudence. We believe we struck the right balance. The documents, published by the Public Records Aggregator Judy Records, remained online from October 15, 2021 to February 26, 2022. The breach, first reported by the Southern California News Group, was not a malicious hack, but rather a security vulnerability in the State Bar's case management system operated by Texas-based Tyler Technologies. As a result, the confidential records were unintentionally swept up and published by Judy Records. Access to the State Bar's public record system has been restored and the case management portal vulnerability has been corrected. The search function on the Judy Records website remained disabled on Friday. The website's administrator said in a note to users that the Tyler Technologies portal glitch allowed access to court cases for various jurisdictions in California, Texas, Georgia and Kansas. If we get any update on this, we will transmit to you in a future episode of the GDPR Show. Returning to California now, and MindNurse, a healthcare startup that provides chronic care management and remote patient monitoring services, said it will shut down at the end of this month after reporting a data breach that exposed personal health information of its users. The startup, which launched as Solusive Health, said in a data breach notice filed with the California Attorney General's Office, they discovered a breach on March the 7th this year during which an unauthorised individual accessed the company's protected health data. The data breach notice warned that patients' demographic, health and financial information was accessed, including names, phone numbers, dates of birth, but also medical histories, diagnosis, treatments, lab test results, prescriptions and health insurance information. Mindless said in the data breach notice that its decision to close the business is unrelated to the data security incident, but not provide a reason. The company said it began notifying affected patients on April 29th, the same date as its data breach notification, more than seven weeks after the breach was originally discovered. MyNurse co-founder and chief executive, Walid Mazen, provided us with a short statement saying the company was considering how to best adjust our business model in a changing healthcare landscape. 
but declined to answer any questions about the data breach, including why it took the company seven weeks to notify affected patients or if my nurse had carried out a third-party security audit of its systems prior to the breach. Wish there was a simple guide to GDPR? Well, now there is. GDPR made simple. Available now on Amazon. A cyber attack that compromised the personal data of hundreds of thousands of students in New York has affected additional students based in Colorado. The security incident occurred at California-based software company and New York City vendor Illuminate Education, which makes apps to track students' grades and attendance. Cyber criminals hacked into the company's network, gaining access to databases containing student data, some of which they exfiltrated. In March, New York City's Department of Education announced that the attack had exposed the names, birth dates, ethnicities, home languages and student ID numbers of 820,000 current and former New York City public school students. According to recent reports by Nine News and KOAA, the intrusion at Illuminators also impacted school districts in Colorado, including Douglas County, Mesa County Valley School District 51, District 12 and District 70. On Tuesday, parents of District 70 students received a letter advising them their children's data may have been compromised. The letter said on January 8, 2022, Illuminate Education became aware of suspicious activity in a set of isolated applications within their programmes. They immediately took steps to secure the affected applications and launched an investigation with external forensic specialists to determine the nature and scope of the activity. The investigation determined on March 24th that unauthorised access to certain databases containing potentially protected student information had taken place between December 28, 2021 and January 8, 2022. District 70 parents were told that while no child's social security number was impacted by the breach, other data including name, birth date, school of enrolment, student ID and gender had been compromised. A similar letter was sent to the parents of District 12 students on April 29th. Both District 12 and 70 have withdrawn all their students' data from Illuminate Education and have stated that they will not engage services of the company in the future. Mesa County Valley School District 51, which used Illuminate Education's assessment, progress monitoring and screening tool, EduClimber, said the databases accessed in the breach may have contained students' academic and behaviour information and accommodation information. Illuminate is offering impacted individuals 12 months of complimentary identity monitoring services. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. To Canada now, and IKEA says that it's notified Canada's privacy watchdog following a large data breach involving the personal information of approximately 95,000 customers. In a statement, IKEA said that some of its customers' personal information appeared in the results of a generic search performed by a co-worker at IKEA Canada between March the 1st and the 3rd using IKEA's customer database. IKEA revealed that no financial or banking information was involved in the breach. In a statement, ITEA said, At ITEA, the security of our customers' private information is of utmost importance and we have proactively notified the Office of the Privacy Commissioner of Canada about this incident, as well as any applicable customers. We have also reviewed and updated internal processes to prevent such incidents in the future. No action is required by our customers. While we can't speculate as to why the search was made, we can share that we have taken actions to remedy this situation. ITEA Canada PR lead, Christine Newbigging, said, we have also reviewed our internal processes and reminded our co-workers of their obligation to protect customer information. In a letter sent to affected customers, IKEA Canada said that compromised data included customer names, email addresses, phone numbers and postal codes. It also said that the IKEA family loyalty program numbers belonging to customers may have been visible. 
I tell you, Canada's reportedly submitted a breach report to the Office of the Privacy Commissioner of Canada. If we get any update from this, either from ITEA or the Privacy Commissioner of Canada, we will talk to you in a future episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. Contact us on helpdesk at gdprweeklyshow.com. Google has given Android developers a two-month deadline for complying with its latest Play Store data transparency rules, which require all apps to include details of how user data will be processed. The new rules aim to improve users' confidence when downloading apps from the Google Play Store, offering better detail about what each app's data collection practices involve. We heard from users and app developers that displaying the data an app collects without additional context is not enough, said Suzanne Frey, Vice President of Product at Android Security and Privacy. Users want to know for what purpose their data has been collected and whether the developer is sharing the user data with third parties. In addition, users want to understand how app developers are securing user data after an app is downloaded. Developers will have to complete a new section that lives on the app's info page by the 20th of July this year and include app information such as if the developer is collecting data and if so, for what purpose, if the developer is sharing data with third parties, details of the app security measures such as any elements of data encryption, whether the app security measures are validated against industry standards such as MASVS, and whether the app complies with the Google Play's family policy. The details developers will need to provide fall broadly under the categories of data collection, data sharing and cyber security. Other disclosures will also need to be made, such as how the developer plans to deal with account information if they use that information in other areas of the app, such as fraud prevention, for example. The only developers that will be excluded from the deadline will be those who develop system services, apps that are pre-installed on some devices and cannot be uninstalled. When visiting an app's Play Store page, users can navigate to the app's details and discover more details about the app's privacy and security provisions, alongside the pre-existing safety details and miscellaneous app information. Apps should help users explore the world, connect with loved ones, do work, learn something new and more without compromising user safety, said Frey. The new data safety section, in addition to Google Play's existing safety features, gives people the visibility and control they need to enjoy their app. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. Some more useful guidance from the High Court now on when compensation may or may not be payable following a data breach. In Underwood versus Bounty UK Limited and Hampshire Hospitals NHS Trust, EWHC 888QB, the High Court provided further guidance on the requisite threshold of seriousness and claims for its temporary damages. The facts of the claim are of less importance than the guidance that the High Court has provided. Briefly, the first defendant, Bounty Limited, was fined £400,000 by the ICO in 2019 in respect of data harvested from expectant mothers that it sold on to third parties. The claim against the hospital, a second defendant, was dismissed on the basis that the unlawful conduct was solely by bounty and there was no breach of data protection legislation by the hospital. In dismissing the claim, Judge Nicklin also held there was no positive act on the part of the hospital that could constitute misuse of private information. It was insufficient to sustain a cause of action in misuse of private information that the hospital permitted the bounty representative access to the claimants. Even if a claim in misuse of private information was viable, the information in question was trivial amounting only to the name, gender and date of birth of the second claimant child. Such information did not reach the level of seriousness required before the tort is engaged. Judge Nixon also ruled that the claim for exemplary damages was misconceived and should never have been included. Such claims are wholly exceptional. 
The decision from the judge in charge of the media and communications list provides further helpful guidance in the field of data breach litigation, where claims of misuse of personal information and exemplary damages are often inappropriately included simply as a matter of course, and where it's often argued that insignificant personal data grounds as a claim for damages. The judgment also sits alongside similar decisions in Warren v. DSG Retail, 2021, in which the court dismissed the claim for misuse of personal information arising out of a cyber attack, and Rolf v. Ors v. Ville was Bizard's LLP, 2021, in which a low-level claim was dismissed on de minimis principles. Contact us on helpdesk at gdprweeklyshow.com. If anyone listening thinks that the 72-hour time for notifying a data breach under GDPR is tight, then have some consideration for companies in India, where it's proposed that organisations in India will face a six-hour data breach reporting deadline following the introduction of new rules by the country's Computer Emergency Response Team, CERT-IN. The new rules will apply to critical parts of India's network and IT infrastructure, including service providers, data centres, government organisations and corporations. The reporting window is much shorter than those in other large economies, for example in the EU with the R72-hour rule. Organisations covered by the rule must keep logs for 180 days after the incident. Some sectors, including data centres, cloud service providers and virtual private network providers, will also have to register and maintain certain information about customers, including names, IP addresses and their reason for using services for at least five years. Similarly, cryptocurrency services will be obliged to maintain know-your-customer records. CERTIN has issued a list of 20 types of incident that organisations must report within the six-hour window. These include targeting, scanning, probing of critical networks and systems, compromise of critical information systems or information, unauthorised access of IT systems or data, defacement of websites or intrusion into a website and unauthorised changes such as inserting malicious codes, links to external websites, etc., Malicious code attacks such as the spreading of virus, worms, trojan, bots, spyware, ransomware or crypto miners. Attacks on servers such as database mail and DNS and network devices such as routers. Identity theft, spoofing and phishing attacks. Denial of service and distributed denial of service attacks. Attacks on critical infrastructure and operational technology systems and wireless networks. Attacks on applications such as e-governance, e-commerce. Data breaches, data leaks. Attacks on the Internet of Things, devices and associated systems, networks, software and servers. Attacks or incidents affecting digital payment systems. Attacks through malicious mobile apps, fake mobile apps, unauthorised access to social media accounts. Attacks on malicious suspicious activities in affecting cloud computing systems, servers, software and applications. Attacks on malicious suspicious activities in affecting systems, servers, networks, software, applications relating to big data, blockchain, virtual assets, virtual asset exchanges, custodian wallets, robotics, 3D and 4D printing, additive manufacturing and drones, and attacks on malicious suspicious activities affecting systems, servers, software and applications related to artificial intelligence and machine learning. So really a very general sweep. I mean, pretty well any data breach activity is going to need reporting within this new smaller window. All organisations covered by the directive must synchronise their systems to network time servers maintained by India's National Informatics Centre or National Physical Laboratory or network time servers synced to those systems, presumably to make it easier for certain to analyse log data. Organisations that fail to comply may face penalties set out in India's IT Act 2000. Announcing the new rules, 
India's Ministry of Electronics and IT stated that certain has identified certain gaps causing hindrance in incident analysis, adding that the rules would enhance overall cybersecurity posture and ensure safe and trusted internet in the country. The new rules are due to come into force 60 days after their announcement on April 28th this year. Data protection, citizens' rights and digitalisation are at the forefront of the revolutionary European health data space, the EHDS, presented by the EU Executive on Tuesday the 3rd of May. The proposal intends to address the limited use of digital health data in the EU because of different standards amongst member states and limited interoperability. The framework we have put together for the EHDS respects citizens' and patients' rights, said Health Commissioner Stella Kiritidis, highlighting how the trust component remains crucial for its uptake. Several digital health products are already available on our smartphones, including the EU's Top ID19 certificates and telehealth applications. What we want to do now is accelerate that to other parts of the health system, said an EU official. For Commission Vice President Margarita Schinas, the EHDS represents a milestone for our digital transformation and a real revolution in European medical history, as health data is the blood running through the veins of our healthcare systems. Every time that a proposal on data is presented, there's lots of excitement around, but this is big. It's important, it's necessary, it's innovative, and it comes at the right time, he said. However, the HCS requires an additional layer of security protection to pay the already strong GDPR, so that citizens can be confident that their personal health data will be handled with the greatest care, and it will be underpinned by very strong data protection and data security. According to an EU official, this approach will be translated into a kind of GDPR plus system, where we are moving slightly away from the consent system to a system where if citizens have agreed to use that data and have said that they want to be able to control to deal with their data, then they wouldn't need to give specific consent. Most health data will be anonymised or pseudonymised and there will be very strict guarantees about the fact that other parties can look at but not access the patient's data. The Guild of University Research Universities said that the success of the HDS will depend on how effectively it can address legal uncertainties that the uneven implementation of GDPR has created. The EU executive expects inter-institutional negotiations to last between 18 months and two years, plus one year to implementation, with 2025 as the current target date for GDPR Plus to start functioning. There will be no better time in than now, as we still have our memories very fresh, the desperation with which we were looking for knowledge during the pandemic, and we were still harvesting any possible data that we could have, said Sheenas. The COVID certificate was considered a source of inspiration, and the HDS platform was built on the progress made on that front. This is the same team that brought the COVID-19 certificate to life, said Sheenas. The HDS is provided with a budget of €800 million, Euros, coming from different EU funding programmes such as EU for Health, Digital Europe and Horizon Europe. Tarotidis said that when the EU advocated for a bigger budget for health, it was exactly these kinds of initiatives that we had in mind. Considerable additional funds can come from the Recovery and Resilience Facility as well. We're very happy and lucky to have under the National Recovery and Resilience Funds an order of about 10 to 12 billion euros earmarked for the digitalisation of health services in different member states. However, the EHDC is expected to produce significant savings as, for instance, EU countries spend 1.4 billion euros on medical images every year and 10% of this is believed to be unnecessary. Once the same standards and specifications are available in all member states, creating an EU-wide market for electronic health records could be possible. So far, provided digital health services have faced barriers and limited interoperability and additional costs when entering the markets of member states. Wish there was a simple guide to GDPR? 
Well, now there is. GDPR made simple. Available now on Amazon. A quick update from America now. And last month, the state of Utah passed the Utah Consumer Privacy Act, moving close to becoming the fourth state to enact privacy legislation in the U.S. behind California, Colorado and Virginia. Currently, 22 states, including Alaska, Hawaii, Massachusetts, New York, Pennsylvania, Washington, Wisconsin and New Jersey, have multiple consumer privacy legislation pending. It's very interesting for us here in Europe to note how many of these sets of legislation are modelled closely on GDPR. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. Turning to Hungary now and artificial intelligence, and the Hungarian Data Protection Authority has recently published its full decision on the case in which the authority imposed a fine of €665,000, the highest data protection fine to date in Hungary. In this particular case, the authority assessed the use of an artificial intelligence solution by a Hungarian bank to analyse voice recordings of calls conducted between its customers and the call centre. In its decision, the authority highlighted the solution's inefficiency in predicting the customer's emotions accurately, as well as the fact that AI solutions can only be used for assessing emotional states of data subjects in rare situations where the benefits of such use outweighs its potential negative effects, e.g. in certain cases of patient mental health treatment. The decision of the authority further underpinned that the bank only gave an overly general information on the data processing by artificial intelligence, and its Data Protection Impact Assessment, DPIA, and balancing test documentation did also not comply with GDPR. With regard to this in the authority, companies planning to use AI solutions for processing personal data must exercise extreme caution. This also means that such solutions should be gradually tested in cooperation with the manufacturer or service provider before being introduced by a company. Firstly, non-personal data should be used to feed the solution, and personal data should only be used after effective testing in the above referred first phase with respect to the requirements and specifications of the given industry and business. After the introduction of the solution, the company also needs to constantly monitor the efficiency of the solution and its effect on data subjects. This also means that the operation should be halted and the solution needs to be recalibrated if deemed necessary, especially with regard to ineffective results, a possible data breach or other incident. Companies using AI solutions also need to thoroughly draft the respective parts of their privacy policies to give adequate information on the use of AI, the logic behind it and its effects on the rights and freedoms of the data subjects, as well as information on how long personal data will be retained and in what form that data will be retained. The Hungarian DPA also made clear that the DPIA documentation, as well as the balancing test of such companies, should also clearly identify the interests of the given company, the rights and freedoms of data subjects affected by the processing, the risks threatening such rights and freedoms, and the measures used by the company to reduce or eliminate the risk. Besides the above, an internal security policy specifying necessary organisational and technical security measures also needs to be prepared for companies using AI. Such documentation should usually help the staff members of the company using the solution understand respective data security requirements and effectively apply techniques to reduce privacy-related risks. Contact us on helpdesk at gdprweeklyshow.com. On April 28, 2022, the Court of Justice of the European Union, the CJEU, held that a Consumer Protection Association had standing to bring claims on behalf of consumers whose personal data was used in a manner that infringes the provisions of GDPR. The key issue put to the CJEU 
was whether national legislation permitting a Consumer Protection Association to bring proceedings in the civil courts against infringements of GDPR had standing in the independent of the specific infringements of the rights of individual data subjects, and secondly, without specific mandate by those data subjects to bring the proceedings. In this particular case, a consumer rights group, the Federal Union of Consumer Organisations and Associations, applied for an injunction against Meta Platforms Ireland for infringement of rules concerning certain users' personal data. The application for injunctive relief by the Federal Union reached Germany's highest court, the Federal Court of Justice, which then referred the matter to the CJEU. The Federal Court had doubts over the admissibility of a consumer group bringing a claim on behalf of a group of users. These concerns stem from whether German national legislation that permitted consumer protection associations to bring these types of claims was compatible with GDPR. In their judgment, the CJEU ruled that GDPR does not preclude national legislation that allows a consumer protection association to bring legal proceedings, provided, firstly, that the data processing activities concerned are liable to affect the right that identified or identifiable persons derived from GDPR, and secondly, that the consumer association concerned is pursuing a public interest objective. The court also confirmed that the Federal Union can bring the claim independently of the infringement of the specific rights of the data subjects and without a specific mandate by those data subjects. In other words, an action can be brought on behalf of a class of consumers subject to an infringement, even if those consumers have not specifically directed it to bring a claim on their behalf. The judgment is one of a number of representative actions brought recently before other European national courts which concern infringements of GDPR. The UK and EU member states have varying legislation concerning class actions. Recent examples include, in the English civil courts, a representative action is being brought by a child under the age of 16 for herself and on behalf of a class of children who use or have used the social media platform TikTok from May 25, 2018 and are resident in the UK or the EEA. The litigation attorney for the child is the former Children's Commissioner for England. It is alleged that TikTok infringes the requirements of GDPR in processing the children's personal data and it misused their private information. Permission to serve the claim outside the jurisdiction against TikTok was allowed, but following the Supreme Court judgment in Lloyd v. Google, it remains to be seen whether TikTok will succeed in the summary judgment strike out of the claim. Meanwhile, in Malta, another company called Sea Planet Solutions was fined €65,000 in January this year by the National Supervisory Authority for a data breach which leaked online the personal data of around 337,000 Maltese voters. Details included names, addresses, ID card details, phone numbers and the voting intentions of around two-thirds of the population. The breach was made worse by the fact that voting intention data comes under a special category of sensitivity for the purposes of GDPR. A collective action is being brought by 620 claimants in relation to this breach, with proceedings remaining ongoing. EU member states are in the process of implementing into domestic laws the Collective Redress Directive by December 25th this year. The directive was introduced because it was recognised that actions for collective redress or class actions vary considerably amongst EU member states, with certain states lacking specific class action procedures. Under the directive, qualified entities, which would include consumer protection associations, will be able to bring representative claims on behalf of consumers against traders for violations of a list of EU laws that includes GDPR. Under this directive, traders has a very broad definition, which will include individuals, companies and other corporate entities. The qualified entity will be able to obtain both injunctive relief and other forms of redress such as compensation on behalf of consumers subject to data protection violations. In terms of compensation, Article 82 of GDPR 
makes any controlled or processor which infringes regulation liable to payment of compensation where the damage suffered is material or non-material. Although, as we've seen in previous articles in GDPR which you show, the non-material damage is now to be very limited and less real harm can be proved. However, this directive in combination with the judgment and redress provisions of Article 82 of GDPR are likely to bring increased levels of litigation from consumer groups. This will require companies to focus even more on accountability and responsible uses of personal data so that they do not get caught up in future litigation. If you're a regular listener to GDPR with show, you might remember back in episode 178, we brought news about problems with Judo Analytics and its potential non-compliance with GDPR due to the fact that it passes data back to servers in the US. Since then, our help desk has received a number of calls from people not unnaturally asking, well, what can you do to ensure that your use of Judo Analytics is GDPR compliant? Well, we're going to run through a quick checklist now, but if you need any help with these, then please do contact us using the details which are coming up at the end of this week's episode. First thing you need to do is update your policies. You must include specific information about any good analytics, cookies and other tracking technologies in use on your website in your privacy policy. This information should be included in the section of your privacy policy that deals with data processors. You also need to think about IP anonymization because according to GDPR, an IP address is personal data. By default, IP addresses are not revealed in reports, however, Doodle uses them to provide geolocation information. You can enable IP anonymization in your Doodle Analytics account settings. This will replace the last octet of user IP addresses with zeros in reports, which will protect their identities, but still allow the geolocation information that Doodle Analytics needs. You should also make sure that you are familiar with the other ways to collect data from users that fall under special categories of personal data, such as health information, as outlined in Article 9 of GDPR. You should also pseudonymize Doodle Analytics user ID. The user ID in Doodle Analytics is a unique, randomly generated number assigned to each user installed in cookies. It allows you to track sessions and interactions across multiple devices. To pseudonymize your user ID in Doodle Analytics, go to the admin panel of your Doodle Analytics account and under user management, select user IDs. Click on edit for the user you want to pseudonymize and check the pseudonymize box. You should do this already, of course, but if you don't, then make sure that you've got a cookie banner on your website. Users must be given the option to accept or decline cookies before selecting data on their devices to track them. To get consent, Doodle Analytics uses cookies, which necessitates the installation of a cookie banner on your website. Also through Doodle Analytics Admin Console, you can disable data sharing, and you should do this if you want your use of Doodle Analytics to be GDPR compliant. You should also turn off a data acquisition for advertising, and then you can do this through the Doodle Analytics Admin page. You should also set within your privacy policy that your data processor in the instance of Doodle Analytics is Doodle Ireland Limited, not Doodle LLC, which is the US entity. We hope you find those tips really helpful. But as we said earlier, if you need any help, then please don't hesitate to contact us and we will do our best to help you. Contact us on helpdesk at gdprweeklyshow.com. The GDPR Weekly Show is an insurer production. Until next time, bye-bye.